Amen. Thank you, James. Listen, if you got a Bible, go ahead and open it with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 9 this morning. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. We're beginning our series throughout July just entitled Summer Fit. We as a church family want to move forward together in the truth. So we want to stay fit. So we're going to talk about that briefly this morning and really come to the understanding that every single church has to answer the question of mission. Now, the question of mission has been asked in many different ways, and so I want you to think about this for just a moment. If someone were to come up to you and ask you about Concord, and they said, tell us about your church, they would be asking you, really, what are you guys doing? What are you about? What is your purpose? What is the reason for your existence? Now, thankfully, we don't have to come up with a mission as a New Testament church and decide what we're supposed to be doing. Jesus has already given us his mission in the New Testament. He gave it to the entire church body. In fact, the scripture says in Matthew's Gospel 28, 19 through 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So Jesus answers the question of mission. Why do we exist? What are we doing? We've kind of pared it down to simply say we are making disciples everywhere. Now, Concord, eyeball to eyeball for just a moment. It is absolutely essential as a church that we have a laser-like focus on this mission which the Lord Jesus Christ has given us. Jesus says that when we are focused on his mission, he is with us. So we cannot have the attitude that I don't think this is what we're going to do as a church. I think we ought to be involved in doing this, or I think we ought to be involved in doing that. Anytime we get off mission and create our own context for existence, what we are doing is saying we know better than God. And ultimately, it, is a, it really is a picture of pride. And the scripture says God opposes the proud. So listen very closely. As you and I stay laser-like focused on the mission of making disciples, the Bible says Jesus is with us. But when we get off mission, the Bible says God opposes us. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a church body that God opposes are y'all out there say yes? So we want Jesus to be with us. So that's our mission. So our fellowship really is designed to make disciples everywhere. In fact, let's raise our voices together and say what our mission is, all right? Make disciples everywhere on the count of three. One, two, three. Make disciples everywhere. Man, y'all are much better than that first crowd this morning. We had to do it two or three times. But God bless y'all. Y'all are here. So this morning as we talk about this idea of making disciples everywhere, there's three major questions that I want to ask. First of all, how do I become a disciple? Secondly, what will it cost me to be a disciple? And then thirdly, how is our church body designed to enable people to not only be disciples, but also to make disciples? So Luke's Gospel, chapter 9. You got a Bible? Say yes. And let me invite you to stand with me in honor of God's Word. Luke's Gospel, chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. The Bible says, and it happened that while Jesus was praying alone, that the disciples were with him, and he questioned them, saying, Who do the people say that I am? And they answered and said, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and then others that one of the prophets of old had risen again. And he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. 
But he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone. This is called the messianic secret. I briefly mentioned it in the past. I'll preach more on that in the future. Verse 22. Then he's saying, the Son of Man, this is Jesus speaking, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Some translations say his soul. Verse 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So let's bow together. Father, this is... Uh, the Bible, you wrote a book, you gave it to us, and you told us to put it into practice. So help us to do that. Take your word by the Spirit of God and put it into every single person's heart. The enemy would love to snatch it away. But I pray against demonic forces of darkness that would love to cause people to not pay attention and absolutely ignore the truth. Pray against that in the name of Jesus. And ask now that you would speak clearly to our hearts, drawing people to discipleship, salvation, and drawing our church family to be on point with your mission for the church. And it's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. And everybody said, amen. And you can be seated. So our first question, what are we asking this morning, is simply, how do I become a disciple? How do I become a disciple? Look, if we're going to make disciples everywhere, you, first of all, you need to be a disciple to make some disciples. Can I get a witness on that? You need to know Jesus Christ personally. That's how you become a disciple. You need to know Christ personally. Now, notice Jesus asked two questions about himself. In verse 18 of your Bible, he says, uh, why, who do people say that I am? Then in verse 20, he says, but who do you say that I am? So Jesus went from general to very specific. He went from society's view to the disciples' view, uh, in particular, Peter's view. Now, the general population wasn't sure who Jesus was. They were all just guessing. In fact, some believed him to be John the Baptist. This idea came directly from King Herod. You remember King Herod had John the Baptist arrested. He was thrown into prison, and ultimately he was beheaded. And when King Herod heard about Jesus preaching, he thought that John the Baptist had been raised up from the dead. He was all kinds of nervous. Thought John the Baptist was coming back to get him. So he thought it was John the Baptist raised up from the dead. And there were others who followed the same train of thought. But then secondly, some believed him to be Elijah. Now this thought would have come from some Jews who had met Jesus at some point in time. Elijah was actually considered to be one of the greatest prophets and teachers of all time. And not only this, Elijah, are y'all listening say yes? Elijah was predicted to be the one who would clear the way for the Messiah King to come to Israel. That promise is made in Malachi chapter 4 and verse 5. So in fact, each time the Jews would celebrate the feast of Passover, and even some to this day leave a vacant chair at their table just in case Elijah shows up. So they're looking for him to come. Now, they witnessed, that is, the people watched Jesus. They saw his Elijah-like miracles. And many of them began to say, this man has to be Elijah who is preparing the way for the Messiah. But then the scripture says some believed him to be one of the prophets. Now, there were many who were looking for a prophet like Moses. 
Why would they do that? Because in the Old Testament, Moses makes this statement, Deuteronomy 18, 15. He says, the Lord your God, or this is Moses speaking, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. You shall listen to him. Now, you might remember Moses in the Old Testament. He led the Israelites through the wilderness. Remember those griping individuals in the wilderness? And yet the Lord continued to provide. In the context of the wilderness, the Bible says Moses prayed that manna would come down. And the Bible teaches that God sent manna down from heaven every single day. So they had bread to eat. But many people over the course of time associated manna from heaven with Moses. Now think when we just for a moment. We talked about it last week. What was Jesus doing? He was on the countryside. He was hanging out with 5,000 men plus women and children. And they were all hungry. So what did Jesus do? He took a few pieces of bread and fish, and he began to multiply that bread and fill everybody. And as a result, some of them sat back and said, this has to be the one that's just like Moses, that Moses talked about. It must be a prophet who was sent from God. Now Jesus, in our text, moves from everybody else's opinions about him to ask a much more personal question. Verse 20, he says, but who do you say that I am? Now, that's the question that Jesus Christ is asking every single one of us this morning. He is pointing the finger directly into your chest. And he is asking you, who do you say that I am? Think for just a moment. Imagine with me, Jesus is sitting at your dinner table with you alone. And Jesus points and says, who do you say that I am? He's not asking who your grandma thinks he is. He's not asking who your mama thinks he is, or your husband, or your wife, or even your pastor. Jesus is asking you, who do you say that I am? Now, Peter responds and answers in verse 20. He says, you are the Christ of God. Two truths in those four words to unpack. First, he says, you are the Christ. This literally means the anointed one. Now, the idea of the anointed one comes from God's promise to Israel through David. So God made a promise to David that a descendant would come from his lineage and he would be raised up and he, the new king from the line of David, would establish an eternal kingdom. And so he was considered to be the anointed one of God. He was the Messiah. Now Peter, having Jesus point at him and say, who do you say that I am? Peter says, you are the Christ. So Peter is saying, you are the promised Messiah who is going to usher in an eternal kingdom. So he believed him to be Christ. But then secondly, he says that he is the Christ of God. Very important, of God. Here Peter asserts the deity of Jesus. He is saying that Jesus Christ is of the same substance of God. In other words, Peter is saying, Jesus, you are God in the flesh. You are one with God. Now, Peter speaks about him being the Messiah and also being deity, being God in the flesh, second member of the Trinity. Now, Luke's gospel, we don't have Jesus' response to Peter after he says this, but Matthew's gospel does record it for us. And Jesus looks to Peter, whose name is also Simon Barjona. Remember, Jesus changed his name to Peter. But he said to him, Blessed are you, Simon of Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so he affirmed what Peter said. You are the Messiah. You are God in the flesh. And Jesus said, God the Father made this known to you. He affirmed that truth. Peter knew Jesus personally. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you know Jesus personally? 
I'm not asking do you know a whole lot about Jesus, all right? Not how many facts can you rattle off about Jesus, but do you have a personal, one-on-one, real deal, authentic relationship with the Son of God? Do you know Christ personally? Now, notice verse 21 through 22. The Bible says, but he warned them and instructed them not to tell this to anyone, saying, and notice what Jesus says, he's prophesying here. He says, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Jesus immediately shares with them his mission. Jesus came to suffer and to die and to be buried and also to be resurrected. But why in the world did Jesus come to do this? And by the way, just for free, because this is pretty crazy. Y'all know the disciples are going to be hanging out with Jesus for quite some time, right? And whenever this idea of his death comes, all of the disciples want nothing to do with it. They don't want Jesus to be put to death. Peter fought for him. They, loved it. they weren't listening. Jesus said, I'm coming to suffer and to die and to be buried and also to be resurrected. It's like it went in one ear and out the other. I'm not sure why that's the case. But why did Jesus have to come and do all of these things? Very simply, he did it so that you and I could know him personally forever. See, ladies and gentlemen, you and I have a massive problem. All right? We have a terminal disease called sin. Sin is missing the mark of God's holiness and perfection. It's not speaking simply about missing the mark in our actions that is what we do or what we don't do being sin, but it also means that we miss the mark in our thought life. We miss the mark in our words, the words that we say. And God says, you are a sinner. God says to the pastor, you are a sinner. I have a terminal disease. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Ezekiel 18 and 20 says, the soul that sins will surely die. Right? This is God speaking. He's not like the soul that sins, probably gonna die. You know, he says the soul that sins will surely die. That is an emphatic statement. And each of us have sinned before a holy God. The payment of that sin is death. And without Jesus Christ, we will die and go straight to hell. That's where we will go. That is what we all deserve. And I was sharing the gospel at somebody's house a couple of weeks ago, a few weeks ago, somewhere around in there. In the context of sharing with him, I began to show him how he was a sinner. He broken God's law, kind of the same thing I just did with you. Talked about the payment of sin being death and how it was hell. And he began to share with me, no, no, I don't believe that's hell afterwards. I think where we live now is hell. Now, if you were in Mississippi this past week, you might be like, you know what? Close. Not so much. Listen, this ain't hell. All right. Hell is much worse. This is a picnic compared to hell. All right. Jesus talks about hell more than any person in the New Testament. Talks about hell more than he does about heaven. He describes it as a place of lake of fire, a place of agony, a place of burning, a place of thirst, a place of darkness. All throughout the New Testament, Jesus is warning people about hell. Why? We have a terminal disease, sin. If we hold on to our sin, we will go to hell for all of eternity. However, Jesus, this is the awesome part, came to die in our place. So Jesus on the cross bore the punishment of our sin in his body. He was buried and he was resurrected. And as we come to faith in the Lord Jesus, humbly asking for forgiveness of our own sin, God the Father counts the death of Jesus as our death. 
and counts the resurrected life of Christ as our new life in him. It's awesome what the Lord has done in Jesus Christ. You know, I took my little girl uh, Maddie on a date yesterday. Maddie E., she's seven years old. And I like to take her out every once in a while. I was going to Creative Creations. We were going to paint some stuff because I am a radical painter. (laughs) Just kidding. But anyway, so uh, they were closed. Thank the Lord. Amen. But anyway, so they were closed. So I had to come up with a different plan. So I took her to get her nails done and some other stuff. And I ain't never been in a nail salon before in my life. All right. So I walk in and the counter is extremely high. So when I walk in, Maddie's next to her. You can't see her. So they look at me and say, how can we help you, sir? So y'all all right? I was like, she's with me. Painted her nails, $3, best date I ever went on. Three bucks. Like, we'll do that next weekend. Carry your mama up here. Nothing to do with what I'm preaching on right now. But anyway, so in the context of us going on the date, we were discussing a song that we both like. I told her about a song that I was listening to on my iPod, and she has it on uh, something that she listens to as well. And it was about the mercy of God. And so, you know, we kind of sang a little bit of it in the car together. And then I asked her, uh, Maddie, do you know what mercy is? She said, no, I don't know what mercy is. I said, well, let me see if I can explain it to you. Let's say, Maddie, you got in deep trouble, and you ought to get a spanking from your daddy. And you could tell she was nervous already. Y'all with me? <laughs> so she looked at But let's say that instead of me spanking you, I chose not to do that. She smiled. That's called mercy. So whenever the Bible speaks about the mercy of God, it is God actually not giving us what we deserve. That's mercy. We deserve death and hell for eternity. But God in Christ, he punished Jesus as if he committed all of our sin. And so he died in our place as our substitute so that he can extend to you and I mercy. Awesome truth. But it gets better. Grace is a little different than mercy. Mercy is God not giving you what you deserve. Grace is God giving you more than you deserve. Whenever you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you not only were freed from the penalty of sin, but the Bible says that God gave you the righteousness of his son. That's grace. That is counted towards your spiritual bank account for all of eternity. And you must have a point in your life where you repented of your sin, placed your faith in Jesus Christ, and were radically changed. That is the very first step of a disciple. That is the only way you can gain access to the Lord God. In fact, I kind of have this in your notes. We cannot access God without Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Listen, it is essential that we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you don't humbly come to know Jesus Christ, asking forgiveness, you will never know God personally, and you will surely spend eternity in hell. The soul that sins will die. You will go to hell without Jesus. And some people are like, good night, you preachers are so dramatic, always trying to warn. It's really not that big of a deal. Yes, it is. Very big deal. A disciple is one who knows Jesus personally. A conscious choice has been made to follow him. So how do you become a disciple? You have to answer the question of Jesus. He's pointing at you this morning. He's saying, who do you say that I am? Have you made that decision? Y'all still with me? Say, yeah. 
Let me go to the second question. Here we go. What does it cost me to be a disciple? Short answer, your life. Salvation is free, but it costs you your life. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ is not just a change in your weekend plans. Coming to faith in Jesus Christ is a change of your life. That's why Paul the Apostle says it in the New Testament. He's like, Jesus Christ is my life. Every single thing for life was found in the Lord Jesus. Notice in your Bible, verse 23, he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. So the idea here of denying yourself is not some sissified commitment to Jesus Christ. This is you giving every single thing you've got over to him, head to toe, everything over to Christ. You know, this past uh, Friday, I went to Lake Lanier. Y'all ever heard of that? It's in Gainesville, right down the street. First time I'd ever been to Lake Lanier. We were hanging out with some friends. And so they came and, you know, we got on their boat and went out with them. And uh, we tried to do a wakeboard. I did. I could not get up on that thing. I believe it's of the devil. <laughs> so I rebuked it. But I did get on the, uh, the inner tube. You couldn't get me off that to save your life. Boy, I got a crazy kung fu grip. Y'all got issues. But anyway, so uh, they stopped the boat. And they said, hey, let's get out. We're going to go over here and climb up on the side of this cliff, and we're going to jump off. So I kind of looked over at the cliff, and I thought, oh, yeah, I can do that. So I jumped off, and I swam over to the cliff with my son Garrison. And Jay and Andrew, there's the other two that we were with. We went, and we began to climb up on the cliff. And then we got up there, and I looked over the side of the cliff. A lot further down <laughs> than I thought. I ain't lying to you. I'm scared to death of heights. Y'all all right? My heart was beating out of my chest. I looked like Mr. Bean trying to jump off a diving board. (laughs) If you hadn't seen that, you go home and YouTube it today. Your pastor said so. (laughs) So here I am on the edge of that thing, man, trying to grip it with all my life. I am scared to death, and it looks like forever down there. You're like, what are you afraid of? You can't swim? No, I know how to swim, and I did have a life jacket, but I'm scared. Then my son jumps off right next to me. (laughs) You punk. Eight years old. If you get home, I'll wear you out. No mercy. No, yeah. No mercy. That's exactly right. Coming down on you. So anyway, now I had to jump. Y'all with me? So finally on the edge, I get up enough nerve and just jump. And for like 32 seconds, I'm in the air screaming. Wasn't real sure when to hold my breath. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I don't know what I'm going to hit, man. But I survived. I'm standing here today. Let us pray. I'm just kidding, but that's pretty good. I can't believe people are clapping. But anyway, so uh, it wasn't like four foot off the ground. But here's the point. Whenever you jump off the cliff, you got to give everything you got. And when Jesus says, hey, you want to be my disciple? You got to jump off the cliff, man. Every single thing you have, you give over to the Lord Jesus. Everything you are, some of you, that's what you need to do this morning. You just need to jump, man. You've been wait, you've been hanging on to the side of the cliff. Not yet. I'll wait later. You don't know if there will be a later. Jump. That's why the Bible says today's the day of salvation. So it talks about giving up our life. And the idea of giving up our life means we're giving up living for our own personal interest and selfish gratifications. You give up thinking about yourself. And it's a graphic denial, too. Jesus ain't playing. He's like, you need to take up your cross. 
And when he speaks about a cross, that's an instrument of torture. It's an instrument of capital punishment. And Jesus is like, take up your cross daily. And what he's teaching here is that you and I need to continue as disciples to crucify and put to death our own plans, our own desires, our own goals. We sacrifice them, crucify our selfishness. We uh, crucify our need for everybody else's approval. See, true disciples have made a personal decision to reject and refuse to be controlled by personal desires and willingly submit themselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And this isn't some secret following of Jesus either. This is out in public, man. No such thing as a secret saint. To take up a cross was something not done behind closed doors. When a person died on a cross, they died openly. They died naked out in front of everybody, hanging on a tree. Jesus is like, take up your cross. Come, follow me. Get out there and do it publicly. Jesus, you want to follow? You want to be my disciple, man? Then out here in front of everybody, get a cross and nail yourself down to my mission for your life. You know, just a real quick... Uh, a very quick story. Fifth grade, um, I was in fifth grade, I was in this little deal, we were singing with the whole fifth grade um, at the school, and I was kind of on one side, like on the risers over here, and here on the other side were all the girls, all the guys were over here, all the girls were over here, and I looked across and caught the eye of the best looking girl in fifth grade. You remember her? I'm asking you. <laughs> Cutest thing you ever saw. Finally locked eyes with her. I gave her the old stellar look, which is basically something like, yeah. <laughs> I just made that up. Man, I need to eat, don't I? Y'all be starting to throw me snicker bars and stuff. But anyway, so finally get her attention and I ask her, I want her to be my girlfriend, right? So I ask her across, I mean, people are all singing. I finally get her attention, I look at her and say, will you go with me? That's what we call boyfriend and girlfriend. Y'all remember that? Will you go with me? She looks and does this. I thought, yes. She's thinking about it. This is good because I thought she'd say no immediately. And then she looked back at me and so she didn't answer. So I said, will you go with me? And she finally looked back at me and gave me a response. Yes, but don't tell anybody. <laughs> that ain't right. Shame to me, man. I look good in fifth grade, too. You should have seen me. I was like 32 pounds and six foot tall. <laughs> Shame. Hey, Jesus says it like this. You want to follow me? Your response is not, yes, but don't tell anybody. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you don't give a rip who knows about it. Matter of fact, that's why we're called to be baptized. That's a public profession of your faith. The New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized convert. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have not been baptized, you are out of God's will. First step of obedience is to be baptized. That is you throwing up the flag, man, saying, I have surrendered to Christ. I am on his team. Everything you have to the Lord. So the Bible is teaching here. Verse 24, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. 
Whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Now, notice the phrase. He's like, whoever wishes to save his life is going to lose it. And the word save there, you can circle that in your Bible if you want to. It means to rescue. It means to keep safe and sound from harm. So Jesus uses the term lose it, which means literally to be utterly destroyed. So Jesus is like, if you choose not to follow me and live your own life trying to keep yourself safe and sound, your life will ultimately be utterly destroyed. But he continues. He's like, whoever loses his life for my sake... We'll find it. So here Jesus states that whoever has his life destroyed for his sake will actually find life. This means that the individual who dies to his own desires and interests in order to follow Christ will find the real purpose and meaning for life. That's why I get fired up when we see people come to faith in Jesus. You know, John Holyfield gave his heart to the Lord. Awesome to see uh, the steps that he's taking just to be obedient to Christ. Baptize him this morning, but he's done a plethora of other things even prior to that because Christ changed him. He's found life. Those who reject Jesus Christ and choose to live their own life, they will find that everything they grab hold of will always leave them empty and unsatisfied and still thirsty. Not only this, they'll be utterly destroyed. They'll be destroyed by who? By the very one they rejected, Christ. Verse 25, what, a, what is a man profit if he gains the whole world and yet loses or forfeits himself? So Jesus gives a scenario here for us to consider. Uh, what if you, and I'll just say it like, let me talk to you just individually, all right? Hey, sir, so what if you do live in such a way that you gain, I mean, influence, power, and authority, and money? Man, let's say you got, all, you got an awesome ride. You got a wonderful house. You got all of this stuff. What if you have all of that, but you lose your soul? In other words, what good is all that stuff when it comes to meeting God? This stuff can't save you. But people are out there trying to be satisfied in life and accumulate as much stuff as they possibly can. So they're grabbing at all of these straws, trying to live life. And Jesus is like, no, 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 you're going to be utterly destroyed. Come to me, losing that old life, and you will find true life. So what Jesus offers here. You know, every once in a while... Um, Sharing the gospel, uh, people will come back to me. They'll be like, well, Levi, what do, what do I have to give up, man? If I come to Christ, what do I have to stop doing? What do I start doing? What do I give up? And, you know, listen, coming to Christ isn't about you giving up some cussing mouth and some hateful heart and your Friday nights, all right? Coming to Christ is about you giving up everything. It's your whole life. There's like a line drawn in the sand, and Jesus is like, you want to follow me? Step over the line. I can't have none of this half-hearted stuff. I'm either Lord of all. I'm not Lord at all. So he calls you to follow him. Verse 26, whoever's ashamed of me and my words, son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. So Jesus is simply like this. If you shrink away from following me because of fear of what other people might say or what other people might think, be sure of this. I will shrink away from you when I come in glory. You deny me now, I'll deny you in the end. See, a true disciple of Jesus Christ is not ashamed of him or his teachings. He openly lives as a follower of Christ because he or she has given their life to Christ. 
So how do you become a disciple? Well, you got to know Jesus personally. What will it cost you to be a disciple? Everything. Y'all still out there? Now, I know whenever you preach like that, people look at you like you're crazy. Everything? Everything. But here's the wild thing about everything. Once you give it all up, you find everything you was ever looking for. So with these truths in mind, we're called as a church to make disciples everywhere. Now, we have to make sure, man, that we're not just this kind of church that's out here saying that's our mission, just, you know, flapping our jaws. All right? We won't actually be doing what we say we're supposed to be doing. Very important. So question is, how do we design the ministry here at Concord to make sure that we're making disciples everywhere and giving you the opportunity to make disciples? How do we do this? How was it designed? Well, I don't know if you remember, and I don't know why elementary school kept coming back to my mind when I was studying, but do y'all remember these? When you were in elementary school, these trays are sweet, aren't they? And what was wild about this is somebody came up with a phenomenal idea that what they would do is they would create all of these particular uh, indentions in this tray to make sure you're getting a healthy meal so you can stay fit. So you got your meat and potatoes, your vegetables, and your fruit, and then your chocolate meal. Y'all remember that? Shake that stuff up, boy. Love that chocolate meal. That's how I keep this physique. So you go through the tray, you go through the line. So you're walking through the line, and what they're doing is they're putting all that stuff down so that when you get out and you go sit down, you have the opportunity to actually be healthy, to have a good meal. Well, here's the deal at Concord. When you come to church, you're coming to eat. So picture for yourself for just a moment, you've got a tray, all right? So when you come to church, the tray doesn't have all of these indentions. It only has four. What does a disciple look like? It's a person who is worshiping the Lord. This person who is reaching out with the gospel. This person who is growing in their devotion to Christ. This person who is serving using their God-given gifts within the body. So that's where you go. So now check this out. All you adults in the house, when you come to church, here's how we're seeking to make sure you get a good meal so you can be spiritually fit and be used of God. You come to church and you go to worship. Boom, you pile it on. Here's worship. We're in worship. Our goal here is to create an environment where you can meet with God. That's the goal. The ultimate question for those who are learning how to worship is very simply, am I surrendering to God's Spirit in my life? That's the question. If you aren't surrendering to the Spirit of God, you're not experiencing true worship. I'm going to preach on that next week. I can't wait. Then you go to Sunday school. Well, you go to Sunday school. Why do you go involved in Sunday school as an adult? Here's the reason why. Because when you're in that Sunday school class, you have an opportunity to learn how to reach you and a group of other people who are like-minded. You are seeking to reach out with the gospel, reaching others with the faith. Our class was talking about this this morning. Somebody actually gave the name of somebody to contact and to call so we could share the gospel with him. Already shared the gospel with him this morning right out here in the foyer. He hasn't been saved yet. But our whole class now is getting around on that, reaching out. So you learn how to reach. And the question then becomes, are you surrendering to God's mission, which is to reach out? And then you get involved in a discipleship group. And that discipleship group is where you learn how to grow. So you get some of that. 
And whenever you're learning how to grow, the discipleship groups are designed to get you in the Word of God every single day so you can continue to feed yourself all week long. When you come here, this ought to be dessert, man. You've been feeding all week. But you're spending time studying the Word of God. You're growing. The major question, am I surrendering to God's Word in my life? And then finally, you serve. You can't just sit around and get fat. You serve. God gifted you. He's given you a place within the body. If you don't know where that is, ask somebody. We want to help you, man. Find a place to get plugged in and to serve. Work off some of that stuff that God is putting in. And then as you do this, check this out. You're walking through Concord, and guess what you're becoming? Spiritually fit. And you know what's awesome about this as well? Is that we actually have a whole set for our students they have a line that they go through and they learn how to worship, reach, grow, and to serve. And then check this out, through uh, not only Brandon's leadership, but also uh, our children director's leadership, Jill Bumgardner, she is taking all the children through an opportunity for them to learn how to worship, reach, grow, and serve. Do you see this? Hey, hey, hey Dad, you want to invest in your children? Get them in line. Let them learn to worship, reach, grow, and serve. Very important. Here's what's cool about it. Y'all still with me say, yeah? Here's what I really like about the whole deal. You want to make a disciple? Here's what you do. Hey, man, why don't you come on and go to church with me, son? Church? Yeah, man, we'll just go to worship. Hey, tell you what, you enjoyed worship. It was all right. I didn't really like that preacher, but everything else was great. Well, i tell you what, Sunday school was a lot better. Why don't you come on and go with me to Sunday school? Then you get in Sunday school, and before you know it, they start talking about small groups, discipleship groups. Hey, man, tell you what, why don't you come to me with that? That's just men, only about eight or ten of us. Hey, man, after it comes to faith in Jesus, right? God gifted you to serve, man. Here's what I'm doing now. Why don't you come and hang out and see if this might be a good fit for you? Do you all see what I'm talking about? This is us making disciples. Now, I am confident that the people that I've grown to know over the course of a year and a half, you do not desire to just sit around and watch Northeast Georgia go to hell. You actually want to make an impact and an influence for the kingdom of God. So we can't just sit around and talk about what we are going to do or what we would like to do. we got to get to doing it, man. And I'm fired up. we got so many people who are. But I'm challenging the rest of you. Get in line, man. Start growing as a disciple. Watch God use you. Spiritually fit. Now, for the next month, which is July, we're going to have an opportunity to discuss in detail this idea of worship, reach, grow, and serve. Next Sunday, I'll preach on worship. The following Sunday, reach, and then you get the picture there, and we'll continue to grow together. But everybody look at me eyeball to eyeball. Don't put your stuff up yet. I ain't done preaching. <laughs> look at me. Look at me. Let, let's pretend I visit in your house, all right, because you visit our church. Thank you for being there. Did you have a good time? Appreciate you being there. I'll tell you what, you know, our mission as a church. Are y'all listening to me? I'm sitting on the couch with you. Well, across from you. I don't want to sit next to you. So, I, I, hey, you, you came to our church. Let me tell you what our church is about. Our church is about making disciples everywhere. And we didn't even make it up. Jesus told us to do it. So we're just seeking to do what Jesus told us to do. But here's the deal. In order to be a disciple, you first, uh, or in order to become a disciple, you first got to know Jesus personally. So my question to you is, do you know Christ? If you died right now, where would you spend eternity? Look, look at the preacher. If you're sitting out there going, I ain't real sure, you can get sure. Say, well, I hope I go to heaven. Look, it ain't about you hoping, man. 
This ain't horseshoes. It ain't how close you get. This is about you coming to realize you're a sinner, admitting it, believing Christ died for you and was resurrected, confessing him as Lord, and then you gain entrance into the body of Christ. And in that moment, that's when salvation occurs in your life. And that is when you know beyond a shadow of a doubt. None of this hope so, maybe so, might. No, no, it's for real. All right? You never look at me and say, Levi, are you married? What, what if you did? And I looked at you and said, I, I don't know. I might be. You think I was crazy. No, I've got a relationship with my wife. All right? I know her. She knows me. So when somebody looks at you and says, do you know Jesus? You shouldn't be sitting back going, I think so. No, no, you ought to know him. He ought to know you. You've got a relationship. Your life's been changed. Look, look, man, I know you all up in the house this morning. You think you're bad, right? Look, if you don't come to faith in Jesus, man, you will spend eternity separated from God in hell. I ain't playing. That is a word from the Lord. Right? Jesus said that. So I am, I am begging you, all right? I'm almost like reaching out there. You're just about to slip off into hell. And I'm like, dude, come on. Come to Christ. Why would you wait? Makes no sense. Come on. So that was a conversation in your home. If I was at your house, I wouldn't have been that loud. But I'd have said the same thing. You need to come to Christ. Some of y'all need to make that decision this morning. Quit sitting around. If you're not careful, you'll find yourself sitting in hell. But it won't be because you weren't warned up in here. Y'all all right? Let's bow. Father, in Jesus' name, speak to hearts. Your heads are bowed, your eyes are closed.